All right, we're on the book of Esther now. We've gone through uh, every book of the Old Testament up to Esther so far in a um, little by little type format, one book at a time, kind of an overview. And what we've not done in a while, because we've had some breaks, we we did um, images of Christ for a couple weeks, we did evangelism, we did the General Assembly recap, so it's been a little while since we've really consistently gone through some Old Testament books, so... Um, with the start of school upon us, I have to get us ready with some review questions. <laughs> What'd you say? Oh, we're not at CBCA. You are correct. Um, but, oh, yeah, old habits die hard. Thank you. Thank you for the tissues. Um, what's ha- what happens in Genesis 1 and 2? Creation. Creation. Um, chapter 3? The fall. Um, the covenant in Genesis 12 takes up four chapters. What are they? The Abrahamic covenant, thank you. Four chapters. 12, 15, 17, 22. Got it. You got it, Amy. 12, 15, 17, 22, the promise of the covenant, the cutting of the covenant, the sign of the covenant, and the cost of the covenant. So that's Genesis. The second half of Genesis is about whom? Jacob and Esau, and then the sons of Jacob, and then Joseph in Egypt. Where do we find the Exodus in the book of Exodus? Including the plagues and all that. Exodus 5 through 15. 5 through 15 is that Exodus. And the Ten Commandments are in Exodus 20. Good. Uh, Leviticus opens its first seven chapters with five what? <clears throat> Five different types of sacrifices. Sacrifices, yep. And then uh, what chapter is the Day of Atonement in Leviticus? 16. So close, so close. Uh, Numbers is uh, really structured according to two what? What'd you say? Almost a genealogy. Almost generations. Censuses. Yes, yes, yes. Which does give you a glimpse into those genealogies. Uh, the first census is about the good or the bad generation. Right, it's the first generation that's depicted as bad, and then the second census is about the uh, second generation that is supposed to be good. <laughs> but, of course, as things unfold, we understand that they too were faithless, and it is only God's faithfulness that saves people. And then the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. Anybody remember where they start and how long they go? Um, yes, it begins generally in four. It's listed in five. We get concepts of it absolutely in Deuteronomy 4. And then it's unpacked even beyond Deuteronomy 5 up through Deuteronomy 26. So long time unpacking the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. The Shema is in Deuteronomy chapter... Six. Yep, 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 yep. So um, that's just the the Pentateuch, and I don't have the review sheet ready for the historical books so far, so we won't get into the historical books. But um, we've we've done uh, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and now we're up to Esther. Uh, somebody place for me on the timeline Ezra, Nehemiah. When were they taking place? What's that? Mm-hmm. 
Yep, it, it was after the exile. So Ezra and Nehemiah deal with the history of the return of Israel to the land. And they really were one book together. And it's, it, it talks about uh, setting up the walls. It talks about rebuilding the temple now that the Israelites are uh, beginning to return to the land. There's a gap between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. And that's where the book of Esther occurs. The powers at hand in this day, what happened in 586? Who was in control? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Babylon had overthrown which kingdom before that? Assyria, which had overthrown the northern kingdom. So in 722, um, Assyria overthrew the northern kingdom of Samaria. 586, Babylon had overthrown Assyria, and so then they take over the southern kingdom. Now Persia is in control. And uh, we have Esther taking place in the, the courts of the king of Persia, uh, as, as some of the Israelites have already returned. So, uh, handouts. I hope everybody's able to grab a handout. Esther occurs after Ezra 6, 20 years before Ezra 7, as some of the Israelites uh, are returning to Israel. Uh, there are two main characters. Uh, yes? Yep. Yeah, he did. He was, uh, I think, 60 to 70 years before Esther. So he was um, simultaneous, perhaps, with some of those events in early in Ezra. Yeah, maybe right before Ezra. Um, yeah. Our notes from last week say that Daniel occurred between Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. So right before the book of Ezra began, Daniel had occurred. So this is very close in time to the book of Daniel. Daniel is not technically an historical book, which is why we're going to look at it later as a prophetic book. Okay. Um, main characters. Tell me what you know about the book of Esther. Who are, I, I can think of four main characters. Who you got? Esther. Mordecai, Esther, the king. Yeah, King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, yep. And then Haman. Haman's the other big one, yeah. That's right, Vashti. Um, it's it's really a uh, reading through that book. You can't help but respond emotionally in some senses because Vashi, like she she seems to be quite a noble queen, and then she gets kicked out for her nobility. Um, the the guy who's in power is just a bumbling, foolish, um, lustful um, jerk of a guy, and he maintains his power. So, so what I found as I was reading through this, Esther is really, in some senses, a comedy. As you read, you're really supposed to be laughing at some of the ridiculous things that are happening. Uh, and it's written in such a way as to emphasize those things. And uh, although we don't know the author and the date, um, the events are taking place at, really at the height of the Persian Empire. So the most powerful man in the whole world, Xerxes or Ahasuerus, he, he has to go to his advisors for just about everything. He, 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 does, he can't make a decision on his own. Sure, there's wisdom in having many advisors, right? But that's not what's being portrayed here. He's a guy who can't even make up his own mind. And he has lost all control. It would have been laughable to the people who read this early on that he can't even call his wife into his presence. He doesn't even have the authority to keep her um, you know, in line in the palace. Of course, we see that as... as 
that's not ideal. That's not how you want a relationship with your wife to go anyway. And Vashti did the right thing because it seems like he was asking Vashti, after he had gone through this drunken party for, for days, he was calling on his queen to come wearing her crown, perhaps nothing but her crown. Right? That's kind of the, the, what's implied in that scene. And she's like, I'm not doing that. Uh, and so just this, this bumbling fool of a king uh, who can't see through Haman's plot. Uh, and then when he's faced with what Esther says, well, somebody's trying to wipe out her people. He says, well, who would do that? He had stamped the approval for this plan to wipe out the Jews. He couldn't even, he, he really is quite a comical character. So uh, background issues here, you see a little bit of the, the dates there, but Esther chapter nine explains the origin of the festival. It's right at the end. The festival called Purim, which basically means lots and is an ironic reference to the lots cast by Haman to determine the day the Jews should die. Its celebrations of Purim uh, carry the theme of Esther, specifically this, the preservation of a God's people and the threat of death. When, when death is looming, when it looks like there's no way out, God is the God who preserves his people. We'll get to that box on the bottom left here shortly. So, <clears throat> if you've not read the book of Esther recently, I'd encourage you to kind of flip through your copy as, you, as we go through this. Um, the introduction is set up in chapters 1 and 2. It's the downfall of Vashti and the rise of Esther simultaneously. And then there is um, Mordecai. His success is set up early on, uh, even though he's not recognized for it until later, because he's, he heard a couple guys in the courtyard talking about how they wanted to kill the king, which tells you, again, the king is just seems to have lost total control over his nation. Even his own counselors are turning against him. Uh, and so they, they have this, they're talking about this plot to kill the king, and Mordecai goes and tells the king and uh, spares the king's life. But he doesn't get thanked for it until years later, at just the right time. And, and so we see God's hand in that. Now, I've already kind of uh, tipped my hand there. What's unique about Esther is that it doesn't mention the name of God once. It's, it's one of those books that just, it does not tell you that God is acting, but it shows you that God is acting. And that's a really important theme here in the book. Uh, we'll get to that, the presence of God and the absence of God. That's coming up here in just a minute. So the introduction really kind of sets up the scene. Uh, Vashti, the noble queen, will not um, do what she's asked to do. Esther um, rises up. God has given her um, physical beauty that uh, brings her up to a position of, of being able to have the ear of this um, foolish king. And then there's this conspiracy uncovered by Mordecai that sets him up for um, success later. And then Haman plots to destroy the Jews. <clears throat> We're going to get into why this is so important here shortly. Specifically, he hates Mordecai. And we find out that that's not just Haman and Mordecai. This is family versus family. This is deep-seated animosity between their families. Uh, so Haman was promoted and he puts together this plot in chapter three. He's like, my life is going great. There's only one thing that's bothering me. And it's the fact that this guy sits in the court of the king and he just really gets under my skin uh, because he won't stand and he won't honor Haman. And his family's like, then kill him. And Haman's like, well, yeah, why not? And so he sets up this plot. He's going to create these gallows. And, um, and that's in, that's in chapter three and or in, and in chapter five. So, um, and then there's more stories here. Mordecai has a counter plan in chapter four um, to help save the Jews. 
because Mordecai has already planned to kill the, Jew, the Jews, and uh, Mordecai then has a counter plan to save them through Esther. Um, but uh, Esther does not make her ethnicity known at this time. Chapters 6 through 9, we see an incredible reversal. Although Haman was exalted and was looking to kill Mordecai, the opposite happens. Haman was humiliated and Mordecai was rewarded in chapter 6. Haman then was executed in chapter 6 and 7. And then there is a plan to deliver the Jews in chapter 8. And then there is actual victory in chapter 9 before the conclusion where you see the Feast of Purim established and then the epilogue in chapter 10. So that's just an overview kind of outline. It's really a plot uh, that can be kind of divided into four. But some people simply give you what's in that bottom left box. They say, well, that's the structure of the book of Esther. Um, and it's... Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. I apologize. Okay. Let's look here the message in theology. This again comes from Miles Van Pelt, who's this, uh, this book down here. You're welcome to take a look at that. Uh, I, I used Miles Van Pelt and uh, Nancy Guthrie and the Reformation Study Bible... Um, in, in, in Matt Bradley in my preparation of, of this material. The presence of God and the absence of God. For the highly, highly theologically minded Jewish religious leaders to adopt a book as canon without it using the name of God means that there was certainly an understood presence of God in the storyline. So the Jewish people adopted Esther into their, their, acceptable, into their books of canon that they considered inspired by God. But it didn't mention the name of God, which means they understood that behind these actions, God is at work preserving his people. Uh, because they're such a theological people, they're not going to take a secular book and put it into their canon. And so that, that gives us uh, some confidence, especially when later there were some questions as to whether or not Esther should be included uh, in, the, in the Bible. But early on, the Jewish people did include it. And so for that reason, the Protestants uh, decided to include it um, hundreds of years later. <clears throat> Uh, God in his sovereignty is the most active character in the story. We talked about that when we were talking about the historical books as a whole. Uh, it's not primarily about this kingdom versus that kingdom. It's primarily about Yahweh being in control, God at work, even against other gods. I'm going to read a quote here to you from Nancy Guthrie. She says, It may seem on the surface that King Ahasuerus has all of the power in this interplay, but really there is a hidden king in this story. And he is the one with unlimited power, which he intends to use for the good of his people, including this compromised queen. So uh, she, uh, um, Nancy Guthrie really sets up Esther. She calls her here a compromised queen. Really sets her up in a negative light. She has assimilated in the culture. She's not trying to go back to the promised land. She's comfortable in her life. Her cousin Mordecai has power. She seems to be gaining popularity and power. She's not revealing who she is as one of the people of God. She's just kind of a compromised queen who's doing what the pagans do. And uh, I think that's a really interesting approach because there comes a time where she's no longer doing that. Um, and that, I think, is a really important uh, part of the story, perhaps when Esther turns a corner in her heart and realizes, no, what's more important to me than being the queen to the most powerful man in the world is that I belong to the condemned people of God. And so that becomes a turning point in the story where she is willing to admit who she is and she's willing to stand up for the people. So that's why uh, Nancy Guthrie calls her the compromised queen. Questions, thoughts on that? Okay, let's look at the theme of divine providence. 
God works through ordinary means. Uh, there are a couple uh, verses here in the book that seem to really uh, highlight this. First of all, uh, Esther 4.14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's a famous verse, for such a time as this. You know, you would expect Mordecai would go to Esther and say, well, if you don't rise up and say something to, to save the Jewish people, then we're all doomed. But what does he say? If you don't, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Why can he say that with confidence? Because of God's promise. God's promise to the Israelite people and God's promise to the world through the line of Judah that the Messiah will come. And Mordecai is like, God might have you in this place right here to be the one that he uses to preserve the line. If you don't do it, God will rise up and save us some other way. But maybe God has you right here for this time and this place to do that, which reminds us every time and place that we're in, God really is in control. He might have us in the place that we're in for such a time as this, knowing that his will will work out. And it's our job to be faithful and to be um, bold and to have faith uh, in, in every time such as this. <clears throat> He is, yep. Going back to yep. Yeah. Yeah, so you'll see the second point under the introduction here. It says, Esther and Mordecai seem content to continue living in assimilation in Persia until, by way of Haman's plot, God makes clear his intent for them there. After Haman's plot comes up, I think uh, Mordecai starts to see, okay, this, this is really important. And my identity is, 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 his would be shifting as well in this moment. And he tells her not to reveal hers yet until the right time. Um, does that, I don't know if that's answering your question. Yeah, I guess I need to reread because I always approach the story as if Mordecai was like the, the real judicious one and was like uh, the guy who was on the Bible on Sunday morning kind of thing, even if doing that or his friends are doing this but uh, what you've said and what I've heard from other people seem to say that like both of these people kind of turn around and they go oh <coughs> we were kind of doing our own thing but yeah. it's time to yeah. get in line with what God wants yeah, and we have indications that Mordecai throughout much of this story is faithful. He has cared well for his family by watching, by taking care of Esther, his cousin. He has uh, refused to bow to the, you know, the corrupt Haman. He seems to be one who is faithful, but that doesn't mean he's 100% faithful. It doesn't mean there's no room for, for growth. Uh, also, I think it's, it's known that Mordecai is a Jew. Uh, I don't think that's known of Esther, despite their uh, relationship. I don't, that, that's only context. That doesn't directly answer the question, but that, I think that helps gives helpful context. There's a hand up over here. Okay. All right. Yes, Diane. So she look different enough to be seen as different? That's a great question. I don't know. I've, I've wondered the same thing. Do you know that he noticed because she's so beautiful? 
Maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, Esther 6.13, I'm going to read a phrase actually before what's in the notes here. It says, And Haman told his wife Zeresh, Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And this is talking about after um, Haman comes into the king's presence and the king says, Oh, Haman, what should I do to honor somebody? And Haman's like, oh, that's me. How about you uh, put a robe on me, put me on your horse, and ride me around town? And uh, the king said, great, do that for Mordecai. And, uh, and Haman, he's just crushed. And so he goes home and talks to his family and his wife, Zeresh, and his wise men. It picks up here on the, pay, on the handout there. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. They understand the implications that the, the Jewish people are the promised line. They understand the fact that God is working here uh, to, to protect that line of the Messiah. And if and they're starting to see those tables turn against Mordecai or against Haman, they're like, yeah, you might be in grave trouble here. Um, and then that, that leads us into this theme of reversal. <clears throat> In this theme of reversal, uh, this evidence is God's work on behalf of his people. Haman and Mordecai's ends are reversed. Uh, I'm going to read a couple verses here, from, or this one verse from 922. It says, The Jews' sorrow was reversed into gladness, and their mourning into holiday. A holiday. That's uh, chapter 9, verse 22. But look down here at the chiastic structure. Chiastic structure basically shows you um, point A. And then at the very, very bottom, A prime, relate to one another. These two are parallel thoughts. First of all, you see the greatness of Ahasuerus. And then at the very end of the book, you see the greatness of Ahasuerus and Mordecai. So now Mordecai is included in that. Um, the two banquets of the Persians, point B, and then B prime, two banquets of the Jews. So you see who's, uh, who gets to feast in the end of the story. Esther identifies as a Gentile. <clears throat> Point C, C prime, the Gentiles identify as Jews. See the elevation of Haman in chapter 3, that's point D. D prime, the elevation of Mordecai. So there's that reversal of those two men in particular. Uh, E is the anti-Jewish edict. F is the, I'm sorry, E prime is the pro-Jewish edict. We're going to get to those two edicts here in a moment. Now, F is the fateful exchange of Mordecai and Esther. F prime is the fateful exchange of Ahasuerus and Esther. G is the first banquet of the threesome. G prime is the second ba banquet of the threesome. And then H is the royal procession. So you can see how very intentionally structured the themes are in this book to show you we're building and building and building, but it's all going to be turned on its head and it's going to end up uh, opposite of what you had anticipated. That's the theme of reversal. <coughs> Yes. Have you said in the past that that's a typical way for the Jewish scholars to write? Yes. Yeah, that's Is right. Is that because of the way they think they mm -hmm. don't think linear, they think circular? Um, so, yeah, this it would definitely relate to that. This this is a probably a different type of linear thinking. It's like an out and back way of thinking. Whereas for us, we just plow through generally in our logic. Their logic goes out, makes a point, and comes back. And, and it kind of fixes everything on its way back. And, and that we see that in Hebrew poetry. Uh, we see it here. We see it in other sections of the historical books. What did you say? The whole book of Leviticus. The whole book of Leviticus. 
I was unaware of that one. Yeah. And it, it really is everywhere. And if you, you can also look at it, like if you want to find it in lots of other places, you can find it almost anywhere. Um, sometimes you force it, you know, to, to make it look like a chiastic structure. So you, you do have to start asking from time to time how much of this is intentional, how much is not. Um, but I, I think it is quite, it is, I know it is quite uh, prominent and prolific in Hebrew literature. Yep. So we're, we shouldn't be surprised to see that. Um, this comedy of the sovereignty of God, I, I mentioned this early on. There's these comedic elements, the, the litigating wives' disobedience. It was a little bit crazy. Uh, the king was like, oh, well, if my wife can't, isn't going to obey me, well, I'm going to demand that everybody in the whole kingdom, you know, all their wives, all the wives must obey their husbands. Um, we, we can't let anybody find out that Vashti has done this or else, you know, all the wives will disobey their husbands. So that's, that's it's a little bit ridiculous. Um, also, <clears throat> King Ahasuerus can't sleep. And so what he does is he goes, goes and reads about his reign. Read to me the history of my greatness. <laughs> yep. Um, and then he has really powerlessness over his officials, over his concubines, over his wife. And then it's also uh, comedy in the literary sense of the term that Haman had a plot, was honored, and then he perished. Uh, and, and really the point is in all this comedy to say, you can laugh at all these people in power because there is no God greater than our God. Yahweh alone. Is, is the is the authority uh, and yeah I'll, I'll stop there see if there are any comments okay this I love this next point here the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman this is what's going on when you have Haman versus Mordecai Haman is the Agagite Mordecai is the son of Kish anybody else remember who else was the son of Kish Saul, King Saul, was a son of Kish. King Saul went in and destroyed the Amalekites. The king of the Amalekites was Agag. So the Agagites were those who were conquered by King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. This was when Saul was disobedient and did not actually wipe out. He did not... Um, commit to destruction, devote to destruction all of the enemies. He actually saved alive King Agag. And so Samuel had to come in in 1 Samuel 15, uh, verse 33, and chop Agag to pieces. Uh, that's how it's described there in 1 Samuel 15. And uh, really what it is, it's, it's been set up from then that the sons of Kish, the sons of Agag are at war because of, of Saul coming in, which is really an example of... Why were they supposed to destroy the Amalekites anyway? Because they were, they were unfaithful. They were not faithful to God. They were pagans. They were sons of the serpent, if you will, the seed of the serpent. They were indicative of the wickedness of humankind. And so Saul's job as the seed of the woman, in theory, um, was to wipe out wickedness. And he failed to do so. And so there remained that conflict and that tension between the son, uh, if Saul had wiped out Agag and his sons, there wouldn't have been no Haman. Um, but Haman and Mordecai, then uh, that's, that's a renewed, um, I mean, that's like Hatfields and McCoys, like on like way back. This is, uh, you got these feuding families, but it's not just back to Saul and Agag. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden 
with uh, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And God's promise was that the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. And you get a picture of that here because the seed of the woman, Mordecai, crushes the head of the serpent, the head of the seed of the serpent um, in, in Haman. So I just think that's a really cool reversal that I had not seen before really diving into this. And I hope it's an encouragement to, to you to see, yeah, this has got to work. This is, this is a, a wonderful story. There's one more point I really do want to make um, when we get to the two decrees here. So let's just really quickly look at some of these approaching the New Testament themes. Uh, first of all, Christian citizenship is in Christ, not in this world. We get that from Esther and Mordecai's wrestling with who to, who to be. Uh, we see the preservation of the Jews in this story, and that's the preservation of the line of the Messiah. It secures the people of God and therefore the promises of God um, in G that came in Jesus Christ. We look at feasting, which is a prominent theme in this book. There are a lot of feasts, and we didn't even get into the feasting thing. Um, some people really trace this and dig in deep. Uh, it's, it's a prominent theme in the book, and it concludes with a feast celebrating the deliverance of the Jews. And it foreshadows the wedding supper of the Lamb where, in which we will all celebrate our salvation with Christ. So uh, I, I really do think that um, feasting is a great theme of the Christian life, and I think feasting is something we should do regularly on Sundays. Um, if I'm ever, you know, trying to be healthy and I'm trying to cut out certain things or I'm trying to count calories, I don't do it on Sunday because Sunday is a day to feast. And Sunday is a day to look forward to heaven when we're going to be um, just enjoying the presence of God and, and feasting on Him. And we see uh, elements of that here as we anticipate that. Comments, question? Oh, yes, yes. <clears throat> I, used to tell, I used to tell my students at CVCA that I'm looking forward to the fried chicken trees. You pick, pick the hot chicken tenders off the trees. I, obviously, that's ridiculous. I hope that's obvious that that's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to be far more, far more feasting than, we, uh, than I think we can fathom. Um, let's jump down to Mordecai and then we'll get back to the two decrees. Mordecai in chapter eight is a type of Christ. He's dressed in royal robes, declaring the salvation of the Jewish people and even Gentiles converted to the God of Israel. And in chapter 10, he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So very much, um, foreshadowing Christ. And we see that even more in the two decrees. So it's, it's a little bit crazy. You're like, all right, really King Ahasuerus, you, you, you stamp this decree you can't take it back. He says, well, I, I can't withdraw the decree that I gave that the Jews can be killed. I can't take that back. So what I can do, though, is give you a new decree that you can fight back, that there, you, know, you can fight to deliver uh, yourselves. <clears throat> These two decrees, one of death, one of life, mirror the two decrees of life and death for Christians. You and me, we live under two decrees. One is the decree of death, that, that we are guilty of sin and we deserve to die. And that cannot be withdrawn. Because God in his justice must punish sin. But he's given us a new decree. And that decree is the decree of grace, the decree of life. That in Christ, um, our deliverer frees us from that decree of death. And, and I just think that's a beautiful anticipation of this full story of redemption that we see in Christ, where we see both of those decrees meet on Jesus Christ where we see the decree of death poured out on Jesus, and then that decree of life then becomes a fountain to all those who look to Christ. And so, again, another one of those things where I was reading through it, I'm like, that's really cool. 
This is, this is anticipating God's salvation and describing God's historic intervention for the sake of saving his people, even saving you and me. And that is what I have for the book of Esther for you tonight. Any concluding thoughts? Yes. Um, it took me several times of both reading and listening to people like her and more read than I that uh, the decree was for the whole Persian um, And so when you had there, it was kind of offhand the um, preserving of the line of Christ. Er, uh, the, yeah, preserving the Jews, like some the Jews. Um, it implicates the Jews in the promised land of yep. rebuilding. Yep. And we know from that story that there are all sorts of people that wanted to That's right. them. That's right. Um, and yeah, just my surface level reading was always like, oh man, this is good for the people in Persia, but like, how does this apply to Nehemiah and Ezra? I mean, it does. Um, yeah. Yeah, you're right, it does. And, and that. I think indicates the far-reaching effects of sin and the far-reaching effects of grace. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Okay, let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time to dig into your word. We pray that we would leave encouraged knowing that you are a God who has worked salvation for your people and preserved your line uh, for the Messiah. And we thank you that we are a part of that line. That we are the true descendants of Abraham by faith. That we are the ones who can find life amidst the decree of death. We find life because of the decree of grace that we have in Christ. Would he be everything to us as we talk, as we treat one another in our homes, as we uh, go about our ways, as when we rise up and when we sit down? Uh, would we speak great things of our Savior? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.